We're going to be in Romans chapter 9, starting at verse 30. We're going to finish chapter 9 and then go into chapter 10. And Paul, through chapter 9, when we talked about it last time, he was looking at the sovereignty of God, explaining that God has the right to do whatever he wants to because he's God. He can choose to do what he wants. He's sovereign. He has that right. He gave us the illustration of a potter and clay. Doesn't the the potter have the right to do whatever he wants with the clay? And does the clay say to the potter, how can you make me this way? He doesn't have the right. And we saw that that's the comparison, although we do say why. We do ask those questions, but Paul is saying we're really not in the position to argue with God. But we also saw that what God wants to do is show mercy. So it's not like, God, I'm going to do whatever I want. What we see that God wants to do is show mercy towards his people. And that's an important thing to remember when you're talking about the sovereignty of God. We're not talking about Allah and the Muslim faith who God you know, whatever he wants to do, you just don't know, and it's not a, he's not going to tell you. Or there's the, an impersonal touch to who God is. That, that's not the God of Scripture. You know, Allah is not the same as the God who is revealed in Scripture, where God is wanting mercy. And so we see that's displayed, but God has this right to do whatever he wants. And now we're going to shift from God's, ability to do whatever he wants to Israel's responsibility. And I want you to think when we talk about Israel's responsibility and their response to what God has done, think about our responsibility too. The big question that's taking place here is how could God bring this good news, this message of grace, this salvation in faith, in Christ to the Gentiles. After all, the Jewish people are God's people. How could God just open the door to these people and it seemingly be closed to these people? That's the big question that's going on as Paul is arguing these things and he's presenting these things. And so in verse 30 of chapter 9, he says, What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it? a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. And so Paul comes again to this place. The Gentiles who didn't pursue righteousness, now the door has been opened to them. But the nation of Israel who pursued the law of righteousness has not attained it. Why not? It's interesting here that Paul is contrasting these things and then he's actually bringing us to a place where we see what the error was or is with the nation of Israel. But I love how he says the Gentiles who did not pursue 
the law, that they did not pursue righteousness, have now obtained it. And I can't help but think of God's mercy. We didn't look for it, it came looking for us. Jesus' words in Matthew 21, verses 31 and 32, which of the two, he talked about a, a parable about the son who said he was going to do the will of God but, or his father but didn't, and the son who said, well, I'm not going to do it but did. Which one of these, he says, did what the father wanted? The first they answered, and Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Imagine how that resonated with them to the religious leaders. Tax collectors, prostitutes are going to get to heaven before you do. Wow. And he goes on and he says, For John came to you to show the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. And the point that Paul is making here is the same point that Jesus was trying to get through to the religious leaders of that time. And that was, you missed the point of the law. And he would tell them, search the scriptures. In them you think you have the eternal life, but they are those that speak of me. And so the law that they were pursuing trying to make their way to heaven was really the law that was pointing the way to Jesus. And that's what Paul is going to make clear here today. The law is not bad. The law is not wrong. The law was pointing to actually faith required in Jesus Christ, but they didn't see it. And so picture the law as this railroad track and the train is taking us down this track to point us and take us to the person of Jesus Christ. And what they did instead of getting on the train and it taking them to Jesus who would then take them to the Father is they took this train track and they tried to make it a ladder to get their way to heaven. And instead of it taking them to Christ, they used it to work their way to heaven. And it just doesn't work. You cannot get there on your own merit. It is pointing you to faith in Christ. And that's why it's interesting to say, in verse 32, when he says, why not? He says, because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. You should make mark of those words, as if it were. Because it's saying that they did it wrong. They did not follow the law lawfully. They did not follow it correctly. They did it as if it were by works, but all along it still required faith. It's never stopped requiring faith. It always has. In Galatians chapter 3, it talks about how God gave the promise to Abraham before the law was given. And so that the promise of faith never went away but the law was only there to support what God originally promised. And so they were missing the point that it has always been a requirement of faith. Trusting in God and his mercy and not in their own works. But they didn't do that. They pursued the law of righteousness, not righteousness given by faith. The stumbling stone that he talks about, of course, is Christ. And it's not like they tripped over it by accident. It was an annoyance. 
It was something that was in their way that they didn't like. And so this stumbling stone that God laid in Zion caused them to stumble, not to trip them up, but caused them to be annoyed, caused them to be offended, caused them to be upset. Why? Because they wanted to trust in their abilities rather than trust in Christ himself. In him, if they would put their trust in, they would never be put to shame. And so we see that they wanted to earn the way, they wanted to use the law unlawfully, as if it were by works, not by faith. And that was their error. That is why the righteousness that was revealed to them was not working, because they did not recognize how it was to be intended, but the Gentiles did. And so God says, okay, the door is open to them. In verse 1 of chapter 10, Paul goes on. And he says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Here he's building on that point. They had a zeal, but not based on knowledge. They were zealous, but for the wrong thing and in the wrong way. And I love how he puts it because he says in verse 3, since they did not know righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. He's saying God had revealed this ahead of time. This isn't something new. This isn't as if God all of a sudden said, I think I'll do it this way. All along, God had intended this tended this righteousness to be by faith in Christ, the promised one, the Messiah. All along, that was his intent. It wasn't as if that wasn't. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law. Powerful verse, powerful verse. Matthew 5 or John 5, 39, I, I quoted this already. You diligently study the scriptures because you think of them, you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. If you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me, he says. And so here we see that this is all talking about Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And that's what it means by the end of the law. He's not talking about abolishing it. He's talking about completing it, fulfilling it so that it is done with its purpose. Not that it was not useful, but its purpose is now seen. And that was seen through person of Christ. And so Jesus is talking in his passage in Matthew about, I have come to fulfill what Moses talked about. Paul is continuing in that and saying, Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Believes what? Believes in the stumbling stone, the cornerstone, Christ. 
who believes that Jesus paid the price for us, that he did what was necessary. What we believe and who we believe in is vital. And how that belief translates in our lives. We're going to see that later. Because a lot of people say, oh, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus. But their lives have no evidence of it. There's no faith in. And remember, faith is putting trust in something. It's putting your confidence in whatever that is. You put your faith that that chair is going to hold you. You have faith that the ignition is going to turn over when you start your car. You have faith in something. It's not just this abstract idea. I have faith. You have faith in something. And so the idea is having faith in the person of Jesus. And you need to have faith in him because that's what it's about. And if you have that faith, righteousness is given to everyone who believes. Gentiles or Jews. This was God's intent all along. This is what he desired to do. And so what Paul is doing is establishing these things. And now, in verses 5 through 10, we're going to see that Paul is going to establish and justify the assertion that Christ is the goal and the climax of the law, that it was the righteousness that was demanded by the law is none other than the righteousness that comes through faith. And so he says in verse 5, Moses described it in this way, the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. And so Paul is telling us again in these scriptures that there is a righteousness that the law demanded, that is a righteousness that comes by faith, is a righteousness that the law commands us, that Jesus gives, it's the same thing. Now, I know we, we maybe have heard or thought, well, the law, you know, pointed that we could not, you know, attain, and it does. But it also pointed to Jesus Christ. And what's interesting here is Paul is using the law to prove his point. He quotes Deuteronomy, and let's turn there. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 11 through 14. Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the scriptures, the kind of summation of the books of the law. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 11, Moses writes, Now what am I commanding you to do is not, well, he's writing for the Lord. What I am commanding you to do is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It is not up in heaven so that you have to ask who will ascend into heaven to get it 
and proclaim it to us so we may obey it? Nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to say, who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it? No, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so you may obey it. So God is telling the people, the law I'm giving you, it is not too difficult. So it's not like God is just giving the law and saying, oh, but you can't keep it and that's going to prove that you need it. That's not what's taking place here. God is saying, what I'm telling you is right there. It is available for you. It is within your grasp. You can obtain it. But you have to connect it. Go back to verse 6 in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Because here is where it begins. Here is where we connect the dots. It says, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. You have to have faith that it is going to be the work of God to change you, to be who he has asked you to be so that you can fulfill what he has for you to fulfill. And so we see in verse 6 that God first needs to do something within us. How does that take place? It takes place by faith. You have to have faith in God that he will change you to be able to do and live the law that he has given for you to live. And you see, that's where they skipped that one point and missed the whole point of the law, that it was faith in God to make us who we want to be. And it was pointing us to the work of Christ that would write the law within our hearts and give us that new covenant. And so they missed the point. They had all these things of the law, but they skipped that one point that everything was to hinge on. And that was you need to have faith in God. It is the work of God to change your heart, to make you a new person. And you see, they missed that. They, they skipped that point. And that brings Romans 10, 9 into, I mean, a famous verse that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Confession and belief in the heart are the same thing. They're connected. I know we, we can try and divide them. Well, this one means this one. This one means this. Jesus said from the abundance of the heart, the mouth will speak. And so when we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, it's not a mere saying, I believe this. The devil knows that Jesus is Lord. He's not going to be in heaven. He believes those things. He believes that God has raised him from the dead. So it's not just about saying or acknowledging. It's about it being what you trust your life in. He's talking about faith in Jesus. Trusting in what he has done. Putting your weight on it. That it will hold you. That it will support you. That it will take care of you. Some of the chairs that were there in Mexico, they had these little plastic chairs and they weren't real strong and they were kind of slouched forward you guys ever sit on some of those you sit on you're like oh man you know and, and it's i don't know if this is going to hold me and you're worried that it's you know it's going to slip through at least i was worried um i didn't have a whole lot of faith in that i wasn't willing to put my weight on that 
we have to put our lives, the weight of our lives, on what Jesus has done and say, I trust in you. And if we trust in him, if we confess with our mouths, in other words, if what has taken place within us comes out of us, that he is the Lord, and believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead. Now, the meaning of the resurrection in the scripture is that God is for us, that he aims to close the ranks with us, that he aims to overcome all our sense of abandonment and alienation from God, the feeling that he is too far up or, or too far down. The resurrection of Jesus, tying with with passage in Deuteronomy, is that God's declaration to Israel and to the world is that we cannot work our way to the glory, but that he intends to do the impossible to get us there. That he will bridge the gap that we can't bridge. The resurrection is the promise of God that all who trust in Jesus will be the beneficiaries of God's power to lead us in paths of righteousness and through the valley of death. That God will take us there. I believe in my heart that Jesus is alive. I have faith, put my weight on what God is able to do. He is able to bridge the gap and it results in my life's confession. He goes on and he says, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and with your mouth that you confess and are saved. And again, it starts with the heart and it results in what you say. Out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth is going to speak. And so it is evidence of what you believe. Now, this challenges all of us. Do we have faith in Jesus? There's a lot of people who believe in God and who believe in Jesus, but do not have faith in Jesus. Live my life my own way. I can, I, it's okay. God's going to look at me someday and say, you're good enough. It's the same thing that they were doing with the law. Same thing that they were doing. Ah, my, my works are good enough. I follow the law, and I bet you they did a lot better job than we do as far as following rules and regulations. And so God's not grading on a curve. Well, I'm better than Hitler. Yeah, I'm not as good as Mother Teresa, but I'm somewhere in the middle. You know, I'm going to get in. He's going to scoop me in the door. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. You have to have reliance on what Jesus did. Put your weight on him and trust that he is able to support and carry you. That's what it means to have faith in Jesus. And so we need to recognize that. And then he goes on in verse 11 and he, he says, as the scripture says. Now he's just basically told us that we need faith in Christ to get to God. And then he says, as the scriptures say, which is great because he's, he's bringing this home to these people who are Jews. And he says, as the scriptures say, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. I love that scripture. I, I love the thought of not being put to shame. And the idea of shame, and it's a quotation in Isaiah 28, is will not be defeated. You will not be put to shame. In other words, you can bank on this. You're going to come out on top if you put your faith in Jesus. And that's what the scriptures say. Anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all 
who come, all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, these scriptures from verses 11 through 13, it is so inclusive. And, and I want you to, it's hard for us to put ourselves into this place of where he's talking about the tension between the Jews and the Gentiles and what Paul is declaring here, that we are the same? What do you mean we're the same? We're the same as those heathens? Those who have never known the law, have never known the scripture, we're the same? And to some, it's a slap in their face. How can you say that? And again, once, once pride lifts itself up, boy, be careful. Because we will stop hearing the voice of God once we are filled with pride. But we see that he is exclusive. As he says, as the scriptures say, all who call on the name of the Lord, quoting from Joel. And then we see, just in these verses, anyone, Jew, Gentile, he's the Lord of all, all who call on his name. We see that God is inclusive and not exclusive. God wants everybody, not just certain people, not just the Jews. He wants everyone. Remember Jesus at the temple courts when he kicked him out and he threw him out and he said, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. It was for everyone. It always was. It was always intended that way. You've excluded people. God has never excluded anybody. Now, that should challenge us. Do we come across as exclusive? Members only? You know, you can only come to church if you follow our rules, if you dress our way. You know, you're only going to be part of our group if you listen to this music, if you act this way, if you talk with this vocabulary. We can become very exclusive, where people who come from the outside, from the world, come to church and they feel like, I don't belong here. You guys are aliens. You are from another planet. I don't relate to anything that you do, and I feel very uncomfortable when I come here because we've made it a members-only club. I'm not saying that we compromise to make them comfortable. But what I'm saying, we need to include them. To say, you know what? God loves you just like you are. Just where you are right now, God is extending himself to you. And if you will believe and put faith in Jesus right where you're at, that's all you need. You don't need to jump through a hoop. You don't need to do certain things to get to a place where you can be saved. You can be saved right where you are because God has included you in his message, in his plan. He has reached out from you from the foundations. That was his intention, to reach out to everybody. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Not just the good people, not just the Jews, not just those who had it somewhat together. What about those who were, well, Jesus said tax collectors and Tax collectors and prostitutes are going to get to heaven before you, to the religious people. That's strong words. I mean, that, that, what if someone, what if I told you that, you know? 
The prostitutes are going to get to heaven before you. What? Why would you say that? Because all they need to do is believe, and you say believe plus. Believe and do this. You've put a hurdle in the way of God, and they're going to get by because they don't have that hurdle. It's not about what they do. It's about what they believe, who they believe in, and that is enough. And if they believe, they will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Calls on means cries out for help. Depends on, again, we're talking about faith. Calls on the Lord will be saved. And so, verse 14, he's going to start, again, he's talking to the nation of Israel. He's explaining why the Gentiles have been brought in, what their error was. They missed the idea of what Scripture was talking to them about, faith in the Messiah. And then he says, how then, verse 14, can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Now he's talking to the Jews. How can the Jews call? How can they call on the one, being the Messiah, that they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one that they have not heard? And how can, he's talking, well, they couldn't believe if, or they couldn't come to him if they haven't believed and if they haven't heard and if someone hasn't been sent out to them, could they? And then he, he quotes the scripture, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And, you know, this is one of those scriptures that you kind of like, oh, okay, how, how beautiful are the feet? You know, feet aren't usually what I find beautiful. And you have to think in their time, they didn't have socks and covered shoes. They had sandals. Imagine walking in dirt all day with sandals. You guys probably have done that at some time or another. And you know how it gets a little crusty, your feet, you know. How beautiful are the feet? The idea of something that's beautiful. Something that is admirable. And you think of Mary who washed Jesus' feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, anointing them with oil, kissing his feet. It's an idea of worship. It's beautiful. How beautiful are the feet that those who bring good news. What good news? This message. That this message is you would kiss somebody's feet who brought you this message because of what it did for you. The salvation that it brought you. That it brought you into fellowship with God. And that is a beautiful thing. And you would recognize the person who brought this message to you as beautiful. That their dirty feet would be beautiful because of how great this message is. And really what it's doing is pointing to that good news. And it's a powerful picture when you really think about it, especially in that time, what he's saying. The feet of someone who brings you this message, they're and it's very powerful. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, 
Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. Now, he has just said, how can they believe unless someone is, is sent to them? Well, someone was sent to them. They did hear, but they didn't believe. You see, the problem isn't that they got, didn't get the message. The problem is that they didn't accept it. That's what verse 16 and also verse uh, 20 or verse 18 talks about. It says, they did not accept the good news for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. I, I want to stop at verse 17 because I want to make a point and I, I hope to make this point clear. In the King James Version, it'll say, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. The New American Standard, Revised Standard, NIV says comes by the word of Christ. There's no contradiction. The word of God is the word of Christ. I want you to take time every time you go through the scriptures and you see the phrase, the word of God. I want you to think about what it's talking about. We have grown so used to hearing when you hear the word of God, it just means the scriptures. But there are times when it'll say the word of God. And, well, it's probably not talking about the scriptures as we think of it because they weren't written to talk about when he's writing. Hebrews, when it says the word of God is a two-edged sword or sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing between soul and spirit, bone and marrow. Word of God, well, he's, he's not talking about the whole of scripture as we have it because it wasn't compiled yet. Jesus in John 1 is called the Word. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In Acts chapter 4, after they were persecuted, they prayed that they would not be limited, but they would continue preaching the gospel. And the place where they were at was shaken, and they were filled with the, the Spirit, and they spoke the Word of God with boldness. What did they speak? The message of Jesus. When you see the phrase, the word of God, look at the context that it's speaking of. And don't just jump to the conclusion that it means the scriptures. It may be speaking about the message of Jesus, the good news, Jesus came, died for our sin, rose again. That is the word of God. That is the message of Christ. Now, why do I point that out? Because... It's important that we recognize that the Word of God is not just writings, but it is the message of who Jesus is, what he did, and having faith in him. That is the Word of God. It's Jesus. It's really about Jesus. Now, all scripture is inspired by God. It is God-breathed. I'm not trying to take anything away from scripture. It's inspired by God. But I want you to interpret the scripture correctly. Interpret it by its context and by what the message is there. And so when it says the word of God, and I love here because here it says the word of Christ. Another translation of the word of God. Well, yeah, that's what we're talking about. Jesus. He is the word of God. 
the message of who Jesus is, is what we proclaim. We use the scriptures to get insight and direction, but we don't preach the scriptures. We preach Christ. And it's important because we can swap legalisms. We can take the legalisms that the Jews had for the law and follow it, and we can take the legalism of Scripture, and that's what we follow instead of following Jesus. And it can be a subtle difference. They knew the Scriptures, but they were blinded to the person. We don't want to do the same thing. Swap the law of the Old Testament for the law of the New Testament. We worship Jesus. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We don't worship the Father, Son, and Holy Scriptures. We don't worship the Scriptures. We follow them to worship God. They point us to who God is. Again, whenever you say something about the Scriptures, people go, ah, what are you saying? What are you saying? I'm not devaluating what the Scriptures say. I'm just guarding our hearts that we don't worship the Scriptures. We worship the Word of God the person of Jesus. And when you find that phrase in Scripture, look at it in context and see what it means. Sometimes it will refer to the Scriptures. Sometimes it will refer to the person of Jesus, as it does here. And look and see. Let the context determine the translation and don't take your hearing of, well, because we've gotten so used to hearing the Word of God. The Word of God was the Word of God. It's the Bible. Well, the Word of God is actually the person of Jesus Christ. That he is the Word of God. And that's who we worship. Okay, verse 18. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Again, he's talking about how can they hear unless someone is sent. Didn't they hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Now, all these things are Paul quoting scripture to prove the point that God did try and reach these people with the truth. Verse 19, again, I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. Who's he talking about? Gentiles. Okay, we're the ones who are, God, what? You know, we're, we're oblivious to the law of righteousness. Those who didn't have understanding. And Isaiah boldly says in verse 20, I was found by those who did not seek me. Who's that? That's the Gentiles. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. That's us. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate and so that's the answer to verses 14 and 15. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one who they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? How can they preach unless some, they are sent? Well, all these things took place. The prophets were sent out to them. They explained these things to them. And it says, all day long he's held out his hand to a disobedient and obstinate people. It wasn't that God didn't reach it was that they didn't listen. It wasn't God's fault. They were responsible and they did not believe. God had pointed the way to Jesus 
in their own scriptures and the law. If they would have understood it when Jesus came, they would have welcomed him. They would have said, you are who Moses was talking about. You are the one the law was pointing to. But instead of following that train track to Jesus, they tried to make it a ladder to get to heaven. And God said, it won't work. It won't work that way. It has to be by faith in the Son. And so that's what we need to recognize and believe and put our hope in. We need to recognize that this has been given for us by grace, and it all comes because God has reached out towards us. And God has not forsaken his people, the nation Israel. They did not respond. They were responsible, and they did not respond. And that's their fault. And then we'll go into chapter 11 next week. Well, let's pray. Father, I do thank you for opening a door so that we who did not know the law and all the nations who were separated from you, who were unaware of your dealings with not only the nation Israel, but mankind, you have opened the way so that they could come to you, so that we could come to you. And Father, we know that blindness has come upon the nation of Israel in part, and you have made a way so that we could come in. You have adopted us into this family so that we are now Jews by faith, and that doesn't mean of birth, but it is of promise. And God, I, I pray that you would help us to understand that, that there is a nation of Israel that is spiritual and, and not just natural. And God, I ask that you would open the eyes to the natural nation, that they would see you and, and worship you as who you are. But Lord, may we take to heart these lessons and may we recognize our responsibility to believe and trust in you and to have faith in you and not make our own rules and regulations whereby we have to abide in order to be good enough. Father, it is by faith and it is by faith alone. And may our lives confess those things. May our hearts believe and may it result in the things that we share and the things, the way that we live. We thank you again for being so merciful to us, Lord. Pray you'd just bless everyone here, and we ask these things in Jesus' name.